to us today, we pray for that. Let's take a moment to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for Jesus' sake again that your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, which never returns to you void, may be a, a solace to us, a comfort, a joy, that we would find ourselves resting in the, the once-for-all atoning work of Jesus Christ, established to take our sins away once and for all. May we find that gospel always to be a blessing, maybe so this morning as well, so that we might respond in the comforts and the joys that come in the Christian life to those who believe your gospel word. We pray that you would accept our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, verses 11 through 28. And as we do that, we use that passage to shed light upon what we confess, what we are taught in the Reformed community and Reformed church about the gospel, and we use it today in terms of uh, Lord's Day 30 as we're continuing to look at the signs and seals that Jesus Christ has given to us, which include baptism and the Lord's Supper to remind us and to assure us uh, of what Christ does for us, which is why uh, we make our focus of faith not on ourselves at all, but on Christ along with the Father and Spirit. So we're going to be looking at Lord's Day 30 today as well then, which is on page 40 in the back of the blue hymnals, questions 80, 81, and 82. Uh, before we turn there, we turn to the word of the Lord, to Hebrews chapter 9, starting with verse 11. This is what we read from God's word there. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things 
to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. as The high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We thank the Lord for this portion of this word. I want to take a moment to respond by looking at Lord's Day 30, and we're going to read questions 80, 81, and 82 there. Starting with Lord's Day 30, question 80, and page 40 in the back of the blue hymnal. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins have been completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself finished on the cross, once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his very body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Question 81 asks, who are to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned, and that their continued weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Question 82 asks, are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they are unbelieving and ungodly? The answer is no. That would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's anger upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. We thank again the Lord for the truths of his word. May it be a blessing for us to hear God's word ministered today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for us all, we, we live in our families, and as we do so, people see family traits that come through, that distinguish us, we might say. Maybe simply our name, our, our ancestry, it may be certain facial features, various ways that we carry ourselves. Uh, I, I can remember years ago when uh, my son, when we were living, I think this was when we were living in Illinois, and my oldest son was walking from afar, and somebody looked at that person. They were waiting for Timothy to arrive, and, uh, and they were seeing him from afar. They couldn't see his face, but they could see how he walked, and they said, 
Well, I figured that was Timothy because he walks like his dad. And I'm not exactly sure what that meant, you know, that he walked like his dad. Uh, but it was a family trait, evidently, at least from father to son that way. And it, it was part of, I guess, what makes us who we are as premiers that way. Uh, these distinctions that we see. Well, we've been called to understand that the communion supper is distinctive. It's a distinctively special event in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not supposed to be underestimated, and it's not supposed to be over, overvalued either. And that, that calling to see the distinction in the supper includes understanding that the Lord's Supper distinguishes itself from the Roman Catholic Mass, and that it distinguishes between unbelief and faith. All the while as it recognizes what the utter distinction is. And that is the uniqueness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, which is where we're supposed to be finding our comfort and our joy. This morning we're going to focus on all these distinctions as we address the communion suffers distinction. The distinctions of the communion suffer distinguished from the Mass, and it's distinguished between faith and unbelief. So let's first of all look at the fact that the Lord's Supper distinguishes itself, distinguishes itself from the Roman Catholic Mass. Our passage, as you are well aware, no doubt, as you read through Hebrews 9, uh, speaks to us, among other things, or I should say along with other portions of God's Word, to be sure, about the uniqueness of Christ's atonement and sacrifice for His people once for all. So that such a sacrifice no longer has to be offered. For Christ's atonement and His sacrifice has fulfilled all other previous sacrifices that were merely typical and any of that people might want to propose that are following. In light of that, in light of that unique sacrifice, we're, we're moved to offer only what is worthy of God in worship and in our everyday walk of life and service to our God. And that is the clear call, that's the clarion call of Scripture. It rings clearly before those who hear the gospel proclamation. That is what is to be proclaimed. Repent and believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ once for all at the cross of Golgotha, Calvary. Calvary. What the Lord's Supper does is also ring that proclamation loudly and clearly. We proclaim now the Lord's death back then, until he comes again. That's a different proclamation than the Roman Catholic Mass. Different in the days in which the Catechism was written, and it remains that way today. There's still a difference between the Roman Catholic Mass and the Lord's Supper. Both at the time of the Catechism and in our time, the Lord's Supper should not be confused in any way with the unique sacrifice of Christ. And our confession wants to proclaim that. It also wants to proclaim that we must not confuse the identity of the element, bread and the wine, with the person of Jesus Christ. We must not confuse the unique sacrifice of Christ 
we must not confuse the identity of the elements with the person of Jesus Christ. But both in the time of the Catechism and in our day, uh, Roman leaders would agree that we can. We can confuse both the uniqueness of Christ's sacrifice at Calvary and the identity of the elements, the bread and wine, with the person of Jesus Christ. Consider a moment how the Mass confuses the identity of the elements, the bread and wine, with the person of Jesus Christ. Both then and now, Roman leaders would profess that Jesus is present, present under the appearance of the consecrated bread and wine and should be worshipped in the adoration of those consecrated elements. A catechism that is used even today, catechism of the Catholic Church, at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. The signs of bread and wine become, in a way, surpassing understanding the body and blood of Christ. This catechism also cites from the Council of Trent. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine in Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in the sacrament. Council of Trent states, the only begotten Son of God is to be adored in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist with the worship of Latria, which Latria is the kind of worship that belongs only to the supreme God. It's to be worshipped in external worship. The sacrament, therefore, is to be honored with extraordinary festive celebrations and solemnly carried from place to place in processions according to the praiseworthy universal rites and customs of the Holy Church. The sacrament is to be publicly exposed for the people's adoration. Pope Paul VI, 1965 encyclical that was entitled The Mystery of Faith affirmed this belief, and in item 56 he stated, the Catholic Church has always displayed and still displays this latria uh, that ought to be paid to the sacrament of the Eucharist, both during Mass and outside of it. Now people take offense at the idea of calling the Mass a cursed idolatry. But it is more of an offense to declare that in the consecration of the bread and wine, the signs of the bread and wine become in a way surpassing understanding the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In the Mass, Christ is being worshipped because these elements have become the body and blood of Christ. That is idolatry. Christ is not to be worshipped in the elements that way, but only insofar as those elements point our our attention, direct our attention to what we even heard in our passage here today, to the risen and sufficient Savior who sits at the right hand of God. And so the Mass confuses the identity of Christ. But it also confuses the unique atonement of Christ. We confess in response to the word of the Lord that Christ's sacrifice has occurred once for all at Calvary. There is no more sacrifice unto forgiveness, unto the satisfaction of sin. Even our passage reminds us that when Christ returns, he's not coming to come and satisfy sin again. He's done that. He's taken care of that. The Lord's Supper declares this loudly and clearly as well as it proclaims the Lord's death from long ago. 
Now, many mass proponents would say today, as they said in the times of the writing of the Catechism, don't, don't worry, we believe in the unique sacrifice of Christ, the bloody sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. But what we declare as Roman leaders is simply that the sacrifice and the sacri of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiary. In other words, it satisfies for the forgiveness of sin. At the Last Supper, on the night in which he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate, to continue the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. There's the bloody way, and then there's the unbloody way. And the unbloody way is through the Mass. The Mass is a sacrifice, perpetuating the one sacrifice of Christ. And that's the issue that question 80 brings to bear. That's the concern. To say that the one sacrifice is simply offered in different manners, one bloody and one unbloody, is to make the Mass a sacrifice. A sacrifice for what? A sacrifice for sin. In fact, both for the living and for the dead. Council Trent says, and inasmuch as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, is contained and, and immolated, which is a fancy word to speak about sacrificing, in an unbloody manner, the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Council teaches that this is truly propitiatory. And has this effect, that if we, contrite and penitent, draw near to night of God, we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid. For appeased by this sacrifice, the Lord grants the grace and gift of penitence and pardons even the gravest crimes and sins. Wherefore, according to the tradition of the apostles, it's rightly offered not only for sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those departed in Christ, but not fully purified. Vatican Council, too, says priests are taken from among men and appointed for men in the things which pertain to God in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Hence the Eucharist and Vatican Council met in 1960. They made this uh, point in 1965, so not terribly long ago. Hence the Eucharist shows itself to be the source and the apex of the whole work of preaching the gospel. The faithful already marked with the sacred seal of baptism and confirmation are through the reception of the Eucharist fully joined to the body of Christ. So you see the Lord's Supper is different from the Mass, isn't it? The Lord's Supper isn't a sacrifice. It's not. In any way, shape, or form. Not. And to say that it is a sacrifice is to detract from the unique sacrifice of Christ at Calvary, which Hebrews 9 speaks of. The Lord's Supper distinguishes itself from the Mass regarding the unique sacrifice and regarding the presence and identity of Christ. Then, 
and now. That's what churches of the Reformation declared then. That's what they declare now. And that's why it has been and continues to be part of the confession of Reformed churches and why it should be part of our confessions as well. So that's the one element we see here, the distinctions of the communion and suffering. It's distinguished from the Mass, but it also distinguishes between faith and unbelief. One of the ways that that distinction shows itself is through the membership and another through the leadership. Looking at it through the membership lens, you know, the communicant members, the confessing members, are the people who are called to the Lord's table to partake of that supper. As members of the, of the church, professing members of the church, that's what they're called to do. They're called to, to the Lord's Supper, to partake of that supper as those who have actively come to a faithful understanding of their own need for the Savior because of their depravity and their sin, and they come to faith in Christ as their only Savior, and are those who seek out of gratitude to bear fruit that are fitting of a penitent spirit and a spirit that has come to understand just how wonderful that the Lord has been for them because he has taken away not just part but the whole of my sin and he's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And I rejoice in that. Such are the ones that come to the table and until that kind of profession is made, they're called to refrain. They're called to keep themselves from the table of the Lord. But then who's to govern that? Who's to take care of that admission and that refraining and that exclusion? Well, the elders of the church do that. Because they're the ones that admit. And they're the ones that exclude. Now, those are weighty responsibilities for the elders. But that kind of governance has to take place, doesn't it? The leadership has always been involved in that, as we see from the time when the Apostle Paul had to step in and govern the supper at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And if you don't do that, if there isn't that kind of governance, both on the part of individuals in self-discipline who say, well, I'm not going to come there until I'm ready, or you know, who, 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 in, who don't show self-discipline, and they just say, well, who cares? I'll just, I'm just going to take it. If there isn't that kind of governance either by individuals in self-discipline or leaders in terms of ecclesiastical discipline, church discipline, well, not only would the partaking of the table become a spiritual free-for-all, which it does in places, it would also cause the discipline of the Lord to come upon the church. Because if individuals will not discipline themselves, and if leadership will not discipline then God, who will not be mocked, and who warns that when one so, what one sows, that he shall also reap, he'll see to it. He'll see to it in, in this life and the next that his name's going to be honored. We can rest assured of that. And so we see again, don't we, that the communion supper is a distinctive one. Both in terms of what it proclaims, on the one hand, and denies of itself, as it points us to Christ, but also in terms of those who, who are to partake of it and those who are called to govern it in the name of Christ. Keeping those distinctions in mind 
will keep us where we belong. Which is the honoring of Christ and His unique sacrifice for us. And serving Him in that vein. Not by seeking to perpetuate and continue His sacrifice but to honor Him as living sacrifices of devotion to Him. And we do that in part. As we proclaim the Lord's unique death, once for all, until He comes again, whenever we partake of the communion supper. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond to prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come... Rejoicing in what the communion supper is meant to be for us. Not a sacrifice, but pointing us to the unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And how it distinguishes itself, Father, from other ways of looking at this communion table, particularly the Roman Catholic Mass. But also, Lord, we're grateful that there's that distinction that's to be found also in, in coming as professing member and how we are to govern ourselves that way. To come as we've been called to come because Christ has said, do this in remembrance of me. But doing so then, Lord, recognizing Christ as our unique Savior, the one who's taken our sin away once for all. And also because we, we delight in the amazing grace that has been shown to us uh, in, in the work of the work of Jesus Christ and His atoning blood. We pray for us, Lord, then to, to see the distinction that, that the communion supper is. It's not a spiritual free-for-all. We pray for our elders as they also have to guard the table in a responsible way. And we pray that you'll grant them wisdom to be able to do that. But also, Lord, in the process of it all, may we eagerly come when we come to understand that, that Christ's salvation has been ours to know and we recognize how deep the Father's love was for us that he would give his son so that we might be pardoned and we might know your peace so may you accept our prayers Father as we pray in Jesus name Amen we're going to sing number 351